I'm Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're curious. We never want to stop learning about the world we live in. We want to discuss, we want to challenge popular conceptions, we want to think critically, examine independently, and most of all, we crave nuance. Each episode, we'll interview a different guest, all interesting and original people. We'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, sports, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? We want to create a platform where people share with us their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. We only want to reach a deeper, nuanced understanding of our existence. Join us on our journey as we explore, think, debate, discuss, and perhaps most importantly, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but, but with a J. Yeah, yeah, they get it, man. Let's just start. Hey there, everybody. Benny and Dan here. How's it going? Hope you're having a great week. Today, we're sitting down with Rabbi Chaya Rowan Baker of Congregation Ramot Sion, a Masorti conservative synagogue in Jerusalem's diverse and picturesque French Hill neighborhood. It's a particularly interesting time to be here as the Jewish people in Israel and around the world gear up to mark next week's Tisha B'Av observance, about which we're going to dive into with Rabbi Baker as well as an especially unique time in Israel in terms of pluralistic and progressive approaches to Judaism, societal change, and dare I say unrest, coinciding with and ratcheted up by the effects of the pandemic. So welcome, Rabbi Rowan Baker. How are you? you? Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. This is a beautiful uh, congregation you have here. We are in a sun-filled sanctuary with stained glass windows. Very, uh, call it spiritual in a way. (laughs) Spiritual, I, I kind of have to set the tone. It's interesting. You see a lot of these buildings in Israel. It's kind of one of these older 1960s brutalist art architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, a brutalist, lot of, look at you. That's what they call it. They call it brutalist. It's not me. Don't play me. So what kind of congregation is this, Rabbi? This is a conservative congregation. It was, uh, it was founded in the early 70s. And, um, and yeah, and we're actually dealing with a lot of issues with the fact that the building is 50 years old and never been repaired. Um, it was founded almost 50 years ago uh, by a group of mostly academics, rabbis, newcomers from, um, from North America who came after the Six-Day War filled with ideals and, and pride and wanting to build up the, the country and wanting to establish here what they know and love from the U.S. And they started the synagogue which quickly attracted many Israeli families who were, again, gathered around the university, which is right here close by, and, um, and, and the hospital, which is right here, um, Hadassah Hospital, which was being built. And, I'm sorry, that was being built. It had existed before. Yeah, so it's a, it's a conservative congregation which, um, which started out very North American and, um, and over the years attracted more and more Local Israeli families, um, Israeli-born, and um, and now is going through uh, an interesting phase, where if the the founders were very devoted conservative families, people who had JTS graduates, people who had serious Jewish education, who had grown up within the frameworks of the conservative movement in America, Ramah, 
Um, and the families which we are attracting now, and the families who are living in French Hill now also, are, are not of that profile. French Hill went through changes over the past 45 years. And the families that we are attracting now are much more secular, sometimes mixed families where the one parent is secular, one parent is more traditional, sometimes um, where the parents were, were, grew up religious but decided to, um, to leave that life and to lead a secular life. And, um, and so most of our, most of our constitu- constituents aren't shulgoers. They're not people who daven in their daily routine. Sometimes, you know, not even they're in their weekly routine on Shabbat. Sometimes not even on the high holidays. It's funny, in America, you talk about three-day-a-year Jews, right? So here, while that's true for Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, everyone shows up. Um, and even we have, it's funny, we have, we have the group that's inside, we have the group that stands at the door, and we have the group that stands outside the door looking in. Um, so, but we love it. We, and, and that's part of our, part of, I feel that's part of our, our, our position in the neighborhood. It's part of our job to be there for the people who only want to stand outside and peek inside. Um, but, uh, but on Rosh Hashanah, for example, Israelis go camping. They don't go to shul. Right. And, um, and it's a different kind of concept. For, we don't have those three days. We have a one day a year Jew, maybe. Um, and um, and, and it's, it's a different dynamic. But so it's, it's challenging, this, um, this notion of being a synagogue and wanting to be a very synagogue-oriented congregation. We have a lot of activities outside of the synagogue or outside of the, the sanctuary, I should say. Um, we have uh, we have services every Shabbat and every holiday, of course. We have services every day um, in the morning for Shacharit, and but we also have activities for parents and children. We have a bit midrash. We have um, we have volunteer activities and um, and and a Noam chapter, and it's, it's a very very active congregation. How, how big is the congregation? There are about 150 family units who are members who pay membership, um, and then there are about, I don't know, probably about at least 50 families who don't pay membership, um, but come regularly to many of those other activities that I was describing. And, um, and that's one of our challenges, is how to create a, a, a praying community with um, people who aren't prayer-oriented. So for, for those of, uh, we, we, there is a video on the website for those who want to watch it, uh, but for those who are listening, which will be most of our um, audience, um, you're on the younger side. They can't see you, right? <laughs> so how does uh, someone so young get to become a community rabbi? And how long have you been here? 13 years. 13 years. So so how old were you, uh, if you don't mind me asking, when you started Four. here? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm not so young, actually. I, 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 uh, I'm told that I look younger than I am, but I'm 43. So I started without it's, when it's I was 30. Um, which uh, it's not so young when you know like, American rabbis start out younger. Sure. Um, for me, I started out after I graduated. I I, I graduated from um, from uh, Schechter Institute. Yeah, I was going to say um, the Hebrew University. Uh, graduated from the Hebrew University, and then I went to the to rabbinical school and um, and did uh, did my MA at Schechter. And so it took me a f- it took me a few years to get to to to, to decide where I want to be. Schechter is the Israeli kind of equivalent of JTS for those who are not familiar. So that's the uh, the place where conservative rabbis in Israel are trained. 
But I will say it was it was strange. I mean, I don't know if you knew the background asking this question, but it was a little strange coming here because this synagogue didn't have because of its uh, because of its uh, history of being established by all these rabbis. The synagogue never had a rabbi. Mm. It was lay led for all these years, except for one five year period uh, many years ago. Um, it was it was lay led most of the time and. Um, And it was, a, it was an issue, hiring a rabbi, hiring a rabbi, hiring a female rabbi. I don't know if it was an issue that I was young-ish, but... Um, were, were you married or single at the I time? I was married and mother of two. Mm-hmm. And, and now how many kids do you have? Four. Four kids, wow. Yeah. So, um, and, and it was weird in the beginning, being the rabbi of all these rabbis. Are, are there uh, still a lot of rabbis here who are congregants? Yeah, yeah. So, so what's that like? I mean, that's kind of... Uh, do you ever feel... Uh, I feel like we should make you like a sticker, like a, like a placard, Rabbi of Rabbis. <laughs> um, it's great. I love it. It's, uh, it's the, they're the best part of the, of the, of the community. I mean, the com- it's a great community. I love it. I love everyone. <laughs> but, uh, but really, it's, uh, the rabbis are, <clears throat> I'm very lucky that they're a group of visionaries And they're a group of such talented people that they don't feel like they have to prove that they're, you know, rabbis too. And they're really supportive and they're, they're there to catch all the balls that fall. And they're, um, they're teachers and they're, they're counselors and they're, um, they support me when I need, you know, when I have a dilemma. Um, it's, it's, really, it's really great. It should be like that in every community. Are any of them around from the founding days? Yeah, still? most of them. Okay, wow. All right, so in America, I mean, that's kind of strange because people in America, usually there's, if there's a rabbi in the congregation, they're the congregational rabbi. And here in Israel, it's actually quite common, isn't it, for yeah. synagogues not to have a professional full-time rabbi. And you do have a lot of rabbis who are uh, trained and, and authorized to be rabbis, but they're not congregational rabbis. Um, is it strange in, in Israel? Again, um, uh, we, we have American listeners. We have you know, other, you know, British, uh, Australian, but we also have a lot of Israeli listeners. Um, it might be strange for them to, to hear of a, a woman rabbi. So, um, you know, clearly in America, that's a common concept. I think even most of the rabbis would be women. My mother's a rabbi. Um, but uh, for, for those of our audience members who, who might not be familiar, what is conservative or Masulti Judaism? Maybe just kind of a, a brief... Right, and, and, and how, if, if at all, does it differentiate from what American Jews that are conservative Jews or that grow up in a conservative synagogue might understand about, about where they are? Mm. Um, so well, conservative Judaism or Masulti Judaism, um, for anyone who isn't familiar with the, with the, with the spectrum, is, uh, is sort of located... <laughs> People don't like when I say this because everyone likes to think that they're in the middle, right? But we're in the middle. We're the normal ones. <laughs> Conservative Judaism f- tends to consider itself in the middle um, between Orthodoxy and Reform Judaism in terms of how we view the relationship between halakha and modern life. Um, so, so where would, for example, an Orthodox Jew... Um, which in Israel is kind of considered the traditional Judaism, um, in America it's a minority, where would an Orthodox Jew put themselves on that, that map of halakha or Jewish law and modern life? Where would a Reform Jew, and then where would a Masoti conservative right. Jew? So here you're getting me in trouble, because 
You're in the middle. It's okay. <laughs> obviously, there's so many, um, so many kinds of Orthodox Jews, right? Sure. And so many kinds of conservative and reform, but um, but you know, kind of um, uh, very schematically speaking, um, reform. Uh, sorry, Orthodox Judaism, at least historically, rejected the notion that um, that modernity should be influencing halacha. And halacha should not be changing. And where halacha meets modernity, halacha should prevail, and modernity should bow down before halacha. Of course, that's been in, in there's been a whole dynamic around that within orthodoxy, but you know, you'll, you'll have another podcast about that, I'm sure. So conservative Judaism, as opposed to that, is saying, no, halacha needs to be in constant motion. It was always in constant motion until about 200 years ago, and it needs to continue being in constant motion. And it needs to continue reacting to the challenges of the time and changing even proactively in order to make sure that it remains relevant and in order to make sure that there's no dissonance for, for a modern Jew between their life as a modern person and their life as a religious person. And so where's one example where... Um, the average Israeli might say, okay, this is, you know, where Orthodox preferred halakha over modernity um, and, and where conservative made that kind of proactive change. What are some, you know, examples we'll see in daily life? The easiest example would be women in the synagogue, right? If you walk into a conservative synagogue, I think all the conservative synagogues now in Israel are egalitarian. That wasn't always the case. Um, within conservative Judaism, there's a there's a, um, an array of of opinions, and um, in the beginning of uh, egalitarianism in in conservative Judaism, there were opinions which uh, prohibited counting women as in in a, in a minyan um, and including women in in the leadership positions in the synagogue, reading from the Torah and so on, and those opinions remained part of the picture. And for many years, not all the conservative synagogues, conservative synagogues chose between the, the options. But today, it's very, um, it's very common, if not all the synagogues, um, that the synagogue is, is egalitarian. And you walk into a conservative synagogue, and you see women participating fully in, in every, uh, every aspect of the service. And I think for many Israelis, that's strange. And I think also for many Israelis, that's strange but I also hear very, very often from people, if they have a bar mitzvah here or a bat mitzvah, and they invited their more traditional family, they later say the traditional family was very worried about what would happen, how they would feel when they walked into the synagogue, what they would see. And when they leave, they feel like, wow, this is really normal. Like, this is how it should be. And, um, and a mother standing next to her son at, her, at his bar mitzvah, you know, after the experience many times also before the experience, she, she feels like, why, why wouldn't I actually stand beside my son at his bar mitzvah? Um, and I, feel, I think a lot of people are afraid of this when they don't see it and they don't experience it. They, they think it's very strange. They think it's very um, different. But when they experience it, they feel that, it's, that they're at home. And, and I know that orthodoxy is also grappling with, it, with this now and um, I'm pretty sure that it's because of the dynamics elsewhere that you know you have to respond to whatever's happening outside of your group as well. 
it's interesting because uh, you know I, I hear what you're saying, and it's we were talking about this before. Uh, one of the things that we always go to is that in America, where Reform Judaism, Conservative Judaism are, are are normative streams of Judaism, people by and large don't choose to engage with with the synagogue. The synagogue is at the core of their Jewish identity because they don't live in a Jewish society such as we do in Israel, and they normally don't have a very Jewish home life, right? Right. If they do, it's a choice that they're making as a family. And and when we when when we were talking about uh, uh, coming here, I said to Dan, you know, I'm sure that most of the people that are in the congregation are very active because if they're in Israel and they've chosen to not be secular and they're, and they're at a conservative synagogue, they've chosen that. Uh, and, and I think what you, one of the things that you said in the beginning was very different from that, which is that you do have a certain amount of congregants who, uh, who, who, who aren't here every week per se. Would you say that by and large, though, everybody that that chooses to be a Masoti Jew in Israel is engaging by choice, that that's something that's uh, more than just, I grew up in this synagogue, so I'm going here, and this is a statement or a choice that my family's making in, in a time and in a place where engaging with Judaism in a non-Orthodox way has to, by definition, even if we don't want it to be, becomes a statement? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think also in America, it's, it's, it's a genera- generational thing. I think also... Um, people who are growing up now won't necessarily continue this kind of, you know, I grew up this way, I grew up in the synagogue, so I'm also going to be a member. Um, I think that's part of the crisis in, in America because it's not just, it's not America and it's not Judaism, it's not conservative Judaism, it's, 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 the, it's postmodernism yeah, and it's, it's everyone, a generation, right, everyone's right. choosing. But I think what you said is very, very true. Um, and, and we see... I see different levels of, of making that choice. Some people come as um, we call them they're, they're custom, consumers, right? They, right. They, we offer an activity which they think might be interesting for them or for their kids or beneficial for them, and they come, they do the activity, and they, and they, and they leave. And they don't participate in synagogue life, they don't join as members. They're valuable because, well, they're valuable because they're people <laughs> and they're Jews and they're connecting but but also we gain support this way we gain more um, awareness and um, and that's important uh, given the political uh, context that we're in but, um, but 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 that's that's very minor and then we have people who who start out that way and then become more and more involved and then make that choice that you're talking about and then I'm always shocked to hear them tell me stories about how they were at a meeting at work with, I don't know, some person, a Haredi person, a very Chiloni person, a very traditional person, and, um, and, and they volunteer the information <laughs> that, they, that they belong to a conservative synagogue. Or, or this person just told me a, a few days ago, she was at a, so- at a store, and the store owner said, um, what was she buying? Oh, she was buying a, a, a suit for her son. And uh, somehow they started talking about um, about the bar mitzvah of the sun, which was a few years ago, and um, and then the guy said um, something about uh, she said she said I, I I you know I we did it in a conservative setting, and he said uh, what why would you do that why you know why 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 do you have to change things and she started arguing with him about how how legitimate it is. This is this is the guy that's just like the. The cashier at the store? Yeah, the, the owner of the store. Yeah, the, the small store. Um, and, um, 
I have learned to shy away from these conversations already because I know they're never ending. <laughs> I know, like, I just want to buy my thing and get out of there. And I don't want to start a whole story of who, you know, yeah. what is a rabbi? This is, is, this, this is like one of those Israel moments where, you know, only in Israel, you're at the store and, and the clerk feels like it's his business <laughs> yes. to tell you that the personal How life choices that you're that. making about your religious <laughs> identity are wrong. Well, you know what? That's what yeah. I love about Israel. I, I really it's do. not like smile, have a nice day. And no, no. Yeah, no everyone's yeah. in everyone's business, but I think yeah. in like a familiar no, and kind it's, of yeah, way. But, yeah, but where does it come from? Because it's, um, it's, 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 it's on his mind right, also, right? right. Like his Jewish identity is on his mind also. That's why he's talking about this. Do, do you wear um, a kippah? You're wearing a kippah right now, again, yeah. for those who aren't looking. Do you wear one on a regular basis? Whenever I'm in the context of the synagogue or studying or praying, which is most of the day, but when I just go to the supermarket or the park with my kids, I often go without it. Without the kippah. Dan sent me uh, a video, which I'll post in the show notes, which is it was it, featuring uh, religious tensions or uh, you and the congregation in French Hill, and I think it was on the public broadcaster here in Israel about three years ago, um, where you were being questioned... Uh, basically about um, Haredi people, ultra-Orthodox ultra people moving into the neighborhood in greater numbers and how that might impact uh, the fabric of life here and how might, how, how might that impact the congregation. Um, what's going on now in the neighborhood? Uh, are, are things easy? Are things more difficult? Uh, what's changed? First of all, I want to say this is an amazing neighborhood. It's a place like no other in Israel. I grew up in Ranana, which is very, very homogenous. And homogenous in what kind of way for those who aren't familiar? Uh, socioeconomic uh, level. A lot of English speakers. A right? lot of English speakers. I never met an Arab until I was, I don't know, until I came here. Uh, except, I'm sorry, our school had a program of Meet the Arabs. Um, but other than that, I, you know, I, 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 they didn't live next to me. Um, I never met a person who... Um, who had significantly cultural different values than I. And French Hill is such an amazing place in that respect because it has really a little of almost everything, everyone who lives in, in Israel. There are Arabs and Jews, there are Christian Arabs and Muslim Arabs and Jews of different denominations and people from uh, Asia, who come to study here for you know long term in the university, um, and um, and a lot of uh, caretakers of older people um, who have a community of their own, and it's just it's just so varied, which I love. Um, it makes life complicated, but it makes life very real, and um, and and I I think it's I think it's great. So the Haredim are part of that fabric. Uh, some of them are moving here because they're looking for exactly that. They're looking for a place where, where you don't live only with Haredim and you engage with other communities and you're part of a, a, a multicolored society. That's interesting because usually the criticism from the secular part of society is that, you know, we always hear like Haredim are trying to take over neighborhoods yeah. or trying to yeah. take over buildings, um, you know, I think the story that they interviewed you, they're opening a, or they were trying to open a kindergarten and then that's going to attract more Haredi families. So, right. so, um, that, so there's definitely that fear. Mm -hmm. 
because you 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 don't really know if is this is this person moving in because they want a diverse neighborhood or are they moving in because they want to change the neighborhood and even if they want a diverse neighborhood maybe they're they're here because they want a diverse neighborhood but if there are enough of them here then other people uh, who want a Haredi neighborhood will then move it will then feel more comfortable to move in so there's definitely that um, that fear but uh, but within within you know within the numbers that we see now it's um it's not it doesn't feel like a neighborhood which is losing itself to becoming a Haredi neighborhood but there is a dynamic in the neighborhood of let's you know let's be cautious and let's make sure that we keep the balance so that everyone stays happy the people who aren't Haredim and the people who are Haredim who are looking for a diverse neighborhood in terms of our community and our life here we thank god and You know, thank the people. Um, we haven't felt threatened. We haven't felt a change. We, you know, we, we're, we're here. We're very, very dominantly here. And I don't think that... We don't feel like anyone is, uh, is, is here to, uh, to kick us out. So, so you said you grew up in Ranana. Did you grow up in a conservative household? What, what kind of religious household did you grow up in? Um, I grew up in a mixed household. The story I knew how I knew to say when I was growing up was my father is Orthodox, my mother is reform, and then immediately people would ask me, okay, are, so are they married <laughs> because obviously it was it wasn't a simple household to grow up in, but it was an amazing household to grow up in in that respect and the four kids grew up all over the spectrum between those two uh you, you and your siblings sides, you yes um we grew up in Tali school. Right, and so Talia, um, for, for those who aren't familiar, is a public school system with enriched Jewish studies, right? right. And it was originally founded by conservative Jews who came from the United right. States, but it's not part of the conservative movement. Right. So originally, when, uh, when I was a kid, it was more, uh, not, not officially affiliated, but it was more, the, 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 the flavor was conservative. And um, that's changed over the years. So we grew up in, in Tali school and in Noam, which is the youth movement of the conservative movement in Israel, Masulti. And we had to go to synagogue, but we could choose whether we wanted to go with Abba or with Ima. So my brother couldn't choose. My brother had to go with Abba until his bar mitzvah. Um, and then after his bar mitzvah, he could choose, and he started going with Ima to the reform shul. Um, and the daughters all had a choice. <laughs> Did they ever go together? They did start out together. They moved to Ranana because of the conservative synagogue in Ranana. And they slowly discovered that it wasn't right for either of, the, either of them. Okay. It wasn't traditional enough for my father, and it wasn't liberal enough for my mother. And so they split up the synagogues. And, uh, <laughs> and my mother was, became one of the founders of the Reform Synagogue in Ranana. My father later was, helped found a very, very nice Orthodox synagogue in Ranana. And, um, and we grew up sort of with those two voices in our, in our heads. By the way, this, this is just such like a, a tr- uh, an amazing story when you consider now, like, you, you can't disagree with somebody without completely and totally shunning them out of your life, it's, it seems, yeah. in the world. And, and, and this kind of a story is just, it's such a good, a, good, a good story for these times, kind of like your parents disagreed about something that in, in a lot of different contexts right. could have split up a family. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but they were cool with it. Yeah, uh, they worked awesome. hard. They really worked hard, and they're very—they're amazing people. They—they're um, really unique, I think, in in knowing how to 
So did, did make they, room for other. Did they keep Shabbat in the house according to Orthodox yeah. standards, according to yeah. less, less strict standards? The what? practice in the house, the general practice in the house was, I guess you would say, was Orthodox. Shabbat, Kashrut. My mother refrained from using the family car <laughs> on Shabbat, even though her friends would drive to Shul, but she did not. Uh, when we moved out, she started using the car and driving to the conservative synagogue in Falsaba. So <laughs> it's a whole thing. <laughs> right. And only in Israel story. So you, you, say, you keep saying um, conservative, and then in, in Hebrew we say masorti. Right. But Israelis are often confused by that term because what, what does masorti mean in Hebrew? Masorti means traditional. Right. So, right. And when usually in the Israeli context, when we say traditional Jews, when we say Masorti Jews, we're not referring to large C, capital C, conservative Jews. Who are we referring to? Right, right. Referring we're usually referring to uh, Jews from Arab countries who actually tend to be liberal on certain issues, but not on the issues of, um, of women in Judaism. Right. And um, and that's one of the places where it gets confusing. Right. So, like the typical, you know, traditional kind of usually Mizrahi, but not just. There are there are a few mm-hmm. Ashkenazim who are also traditional. They'll they'll say kiddush. They'll maybe even go to synagogue, but then they'll turn the TV on or drive afterwards, etc. So, what what is it's, the, it's kind of just one of those things where there's like this this sentence in Israel like the synagogue that I don't go to is an Orthodox. Synagogue. Exactly. Exactly. So, what's the difference between Masoti and Masoti in this context? You know. Uh, it, when you meet the average Israeli and you explain I'm from the Masolti movement, if you get to that point, how do you explain the difference to, or how do you explain the difference to an outsider between a traditional Jew and a conservative Jew in the Israeli context? That's difficult because it becomes like a half-hour lecture. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I, I, I just want to say that that being a woman, I think it's all these in, interactions are easier for me because when I come and say I'm a Masolti rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to think that. Right. <laughs> Do they automatically, is there a tendency for them to assume that you're a reform rabbi? Yes, a lot of times. If I say I'm a rabbi, people will assume I'm reform. Israelis yes. don't really get the difference, though, between conservative and reform. Do Americans? I no, don't Israelis know. don't. No, I know, but yeah. I, I'm asking if Americans know. I think Americans instinctively understand that conservative is more conservative, right? Yeah. It's a little more traditional, but yeah. I also, I'm not so sure that the average synagogue member understands the the nuance. theological difference mm-hmm. the, the the true nuance between the two movements i think that's that's probably true i remember growing up in a reform synagogue and i had friends that were neighbors that grew up in this conservative synagogue it, i mean we were we were children i mean so it, we didn't realize the difference but then mm-hmm. growing older you know i did learn some of the differences in the in the religious ideology and the theology and i could pretty much guarantee that that was because i took a personal interest in learning it it wasn't because i had such amazing educators in the synagogue, and I, you know, my friends will probably say, you know, I don't know, but I, I guarantee they didn't realize the differences, you know, either. It, it's yeah. that was the synagogue that you grew up in, that was where your parents went to, and maybe your parents don't remember why you were there, maybe their parents were there, or something like that. But, um, there are a it, lot of uh, similarities and a lot of uh, um, affinities also, because, and in Israel in particular, there are a lot of things that we, um, we have to sort of fight for together. Right, um, and we should probably be cooperating even more than we do. So, what are those some of those kind of things you're fighting for? Both reform and conservative in Israel are not recognized as legitimate Jewish expressions in Israel. So, our synagogues are not funded by the government. Our rabbis are not funded by the government. We we get 
minuscule funding for specific educational programs and things like that, um, but not for the religious services that we provide very can I, widely. Can, can I take a step back? Listeners in America aren't used to their synagogue being funded by yes. a government. Mm-hmm. Why does that make a difference in Israel? Why do synagogues need right. to be funded by a government at all? Right, so that's a, that's a good point. Um, and do you think synagogues should be funded by government? <laughs> that's another good point. <laughs> uh, so Israelis pay taxes, right, like Americans, except our taxes also go to the Ministry of Religious Affairs, which is supposed to take care of religious affairs for the citizens. Um, the Ministry of Religious Affairs only uh, provides funding for religious services that are orthodox. Uh, and it doesn't recognize that the religious services that the conservative and the reform provide are also be, uh, necessary for s- some of the citizens, many citizens, mind you. So the Ministry of Religious Affairs provides religious services for Muslims, for Christians, um, and for Orthodox Jews. I, I do want to. I do want to. I don't want to make this a challenge, so just <laughs> but just to bring a little bit of clarity because I wrote about this uh, a couple years ago. There's a whole section that I write about in in the, in my book on on reform and conservative in Israel about how that's starting to change, right? Because it, if you dig through the laws, and I, sat, I ended up sitting for hours with the legal representation of all of these ministries, including the, the legal counsel for the Ministry of Religious Services, and, and they don't officially discriminate against reform or conservative. And so very quietly under the table, um, the, the reform and conservative movements and synagogues are able to get a very small amount of funding. Um, I mean, it's nothing in comparing to uh, orthodox synagogues are able to get, but they're, they're able to access now a little bit. There was a, a famous uh, Supreme Court decision that uh, rabbis are able to start getting uh, salaries if they can show that they have a congregation. So do you, do, you, do you find that as encouraging or is it just kind of, yeah, they're just doing it, you know, not to get sued again in, in court? How do, how do you see, do you see that as progress or do you see that as kind of like a sideshow? It's... Um it is, first of all, I just want to say it's in such small scales. Yeah. Um, the most that you can get, first of all, you can get funding from the Ministry of Culture and not from the Ministry of Religious yeah, that, that's Affairs. That's their, their way to work around it. And right. not it's, not religious, uh, it's not religious services, it's culture. Um, and you can, and the most that you can get if you're extremely active, we um, filed for this funding. The, the material that we sent in was 104 pages of material showing our activities and our membership and, 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 and all the paperwork. 104 pages. We get the max, close to the maximum, which is 40,000 shekels a year. That is just above the uh, monthly salary of an Orthodox uh, neighborhood rabbi, which de facto I am, I, I, I function as the neighborhood rabbi You're for friendship. You're a neighborhood rabbi, sure, right. Um, so I just want to say it's a very, very small scale. Very small scale. Um, but, I, but I do, so, I, so, so, that, so that would sort of support the, the, the second part of your question of, eh, they're just throwing us some peanuts to right. shut us up. But I do think that, that things are changing in Israel. Um, th- that is one exhibit of that of the change, but um, it's, it's on so many levels. It's on, there's, there's a different awareness of, of conservative and reform and, and, and diversity um, in, just on the street in Israel. I, I, um, a little while ago, my, my, my husband took my talit to the cleaner, 
and um, just a little hole in the wall in the neighborhood, one neighborhood over. Not a member of the synagogue or any, you know, anything. Just a guy who runs a dry cleaner. And, um, and of course, being the procrastinators that we are, it took him a few months to <laughs> pick it up. And he went to the dry cleaner and he said, look, I gave you a few months ago, I gave you a few things to clean. I don't know if you remember. Of course, I lost the slip. And the cleaner said, oh, yeah, yeah, there was a dress there and the, uh, I'll say it in Hebrew, the rabbi's talit. But the, the female rabbi's talit. Right, the female rabbi's talit. And like, as if it's nothing, as if it's, you know, yeah, you gave me the dress and the rabbi's talit and the female rabbi's talit. And, and I think that um, things like that are happening more and more, that people are just kind of, they went to a bar mitzvah where there was a, where there was mixed seating, or they went to a, a wedding where a female rabbi, rabbi was officiating, and they they um, they see this happening around them, and they see, like I said before, they see that this is actually really kind of normal, and I, and I think that 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 the atmosphere in Israel is changing, even if the legal aspect is taking a longer time. To change. Do you think that some of our polarized political discourse plays a role in that? In in, in so much as like there's a certain correlation or, or connection that's being made between what's going on in, in national politics, the, you know, we'll call it the oversized presence of the religious parties and coalition agreements and such things where they say, you know, I, I'm getting more and more put off by what's going on and, and thus I'm more open towards other avenues or, or, other, or other streams. You're saying are, are people so fed up with the role of the ultra-Orthodox and the, the rabbinate. Rabbinate, and the rabbinate that they're being pushed to these uh, alternatives. I think there's a step missing here because I think that um, that that was happening for many years. People were being fed up and people were, were disgusted with religion because they thought that what they see in politics represents religion. Um, but what was happening was they were throwing out the baby with the bathwater right. and, uh, and not wanting anything to do with 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 Jewish affiliation, right. and um, and that's how we developed the the very hollow um, approach to Jewish identity. Of really, I don't have a Jewish identity. I'm just an Israeli. Instead of saying I'm a secular Jew, and what does that mean in terms of my heritage, in terms of my um, uh, uh, literature, uh, my culture. Um, instead of doing that, there was just such a disgust that, you know, I, I sh- I'm not even a Jew, or I, I'm not interested in, in figuring out what it means to be a Jew. I think that the, the missing step has been happening for the past 30 years or so. People looking to fill that, right? What right. Is missing, right? Exactly. People looking to say, wait a second, I, I can't be nothing. What am I? Yeah. Like, I don't want to define myself as what I'm not. I want to define myself as what I am. And in that... Uh, in that space, I think the conservative movement and the reform movement have done extremely important work um, making ourselves in this uphill battle without funding and without rec- official recognition and with delegitimization, making ourselves known enough so that people, when they're looking to say, wait a second, what am I? So they can, they can say, oh, wait a second, there's an option of being Jewish and modern and, you know, and, and not a bigot and not a... Uh, an egalitarian also. Right, an egalitarian yeah. and, and, and uh, accepting of gays. And, you know, and I, I, I can make my modern values uh, coincide with a Jewish identity. And that's, that's what we're trying to, to, to reach as many people as possible with that message. Your story is interesting in that it, it reminds me of a personal story that we have uh, in my family 
my wife comes from one of, you know, we were talking about Masorti families. Uh, my, my wife comes from the, uh, a typical Masorti Mizrahi family. Uh, we live in Gadara. Uh, and I mentioned that a few times in the podcast. And she's very involved in, in her Judaism in that she's very, you know, she, she, she's very passionate about her Jewish identity. She is a school teacher. She teaches um, modern Israeli Judaism in, in her school. Uh, but she never had a way to engage herself in in any of the in any of the congregational services or life cycle events because you know she was in a place where the, as a as a girl or as a woman she that wasn't her role. Uh, and one year we went to visit my parents in the United States, and uh, my dad goes to a conservative synagogue, and the rabbi asked her, "Would you like to do a bat mitzvah? Do you want to come up to the you know do an aliyah uh, and read from the Torah?" And, uh, and she said, yes, that she wanted to do that. So here we are in this, in this conservative synagogue and she, you know, puts on the talit. She didn't put on a kippah. Somebody gave her one and she's like, this is too weird for me. I can't do that. (laughs) So she, she got up and she read from the Torah and it was very, you know, powerful and it was, it was a good experience. And afterwards she was, you know, I said, are you, are you happy? She said, you know, I'm, I'm happy, but I'm also really, really sad because I had to fly 8,000 miles to be able to do this. I could never do this where I grew up, and where I grew up is such a Jewish place, and why can't I do that? And you know, it, it really became this sort of an identity crisis for her in many ways, because as an Israeli Jew who lives in the Jewish state, it would just be a normal thought to think, well, I'm having these Jewish experiences where I live. But there are certain Jewish experiences who, for so many people, are behind these fences where they can't access them, or if they do, they're pariahs to their family, or they're pariahs to their community. And, and I'm not saying that, I mean, if, if Amnon and Ilana are listening to this, I know that your daughter is not a pariah to you for doing this, but, so this is not about you, but in many other families, that may be considered too much. Uh, and, and when we came back, we were seeking out maybe if there's the, you know, a community that we could join, that could, we could express this, and unfortunately, where we are, there, there isn't. Well, didn't, uh, uh, didn't the Masolti movement just open a synagogue in Maskeret Batya? Perhaps. There is. That's right. Really, really nice community, Mosquera Batia. The so great rabbi, Rabbi Ari Hasid. Yes. So maybe there we, you should, go, we should check Mosquera that out, Batia, yeah. figuring it out. Uh, but at the time when we came back, we, we didn't know that, and, and it kind of just became one of these things where, um, you know, it really became something that illustrated the, the gap and how far things are yet to come. So you do go to certain places in Israel, and obviously this is one of them here in French Hill, your congregation, and in other congregations in Israel, but it's not a normative thing here. Um, yet, yet, mm-hmm. and we'll get there, and I have no doubt that we will. And and, and these times of change are are doing that in great strides. Uh, and maybe this is a good a good transition, and I'll let you respond to that as right, well. But before we transition, I want to I want to say it's interesting the way you explained um, what Israelis are looking for, the kind of secular Israelis are looking for. I write about that from a macro perspective. I write about that looking at society from the numbers and from statistics. Uh, and and I'd be glad to hear your you know on the ground kind of point of view on that. So, so I, I said, um, you know, is the secular Israelis, the secular, they're trying to forget their, the secular religion, that secular Zionism that their grandparents adopted, you know, kind of forgetting the diaspora Judaism, and they're trying to figure out a new Israeli Judaism in that context. Um, the numbers, um, and this was really interesting, so I looked at it, when I, when I did the study, I looked at a series of studies, and the most recent one was one that we, uh, my day job at the JPPI ran, found that 13% of Israeli Jews, and this was a very large survey, 13% of Israeli Jews, if you press them, not if you ask them, are you secular, religious, traditional, but if you ask them, what denomination do you identify with, 13% of Israeli Jews, so that's about 800,000 Jews, 
are identifying as reform or conservative. Now, your congregation here is 150 families. Um, just to, you know, so people don't jump up in arms and say, well, you know, there are no, you know, there's very few communities in Israel. There's only about 12,000 actual reform and conservative community members who actually belong to synagogues. But I, th- I, th- I think what I saw from the numbers was that something is changing in Israeli society because of what you said, because people are going to uh, a bar or bat mitzvah or going to a, a wedding with mixed seating or seeing a female rabbi and realizing not only is this normal, right? Because that's the first step, but realizing that, oh, it's actually maybe even nice and it's actually, you know, certainly for a secular Israeli who's not used to all of a sudden having to sit separately. Um, and I think over time what we're seeing is, is uh, the way I describe it is that uh, you mentioned the synagogue Israelis don't go to, right? So right. The, the way I wrote was that for, for generations, Israelis didn't attend Orthodox synagogues, right? The majority of Israelis were not Orthodox. And now I think Israelis are starting to also not attend Reform and Conservative yeah. synagogues. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, another part of that survey shows that in, a, in an interesting way, where you asked about um, uh, whether you would like to pray in a synagogue with uh, mixed seating or, or, or not. Or you wouldn't mind it, right. Right, and, and I think more than, half of, more than the, half yeah. of the people said they would prefer a synagogue with, with mixed seating. Yeah. Which is, and that, that means that the synagogue they imagine, even if they don't, actually go to synagogue right exactly um has mixed seating uh so that that, that was an that's an amazing find i think um but i think I, I think that um i think that the ability for a secular jew with all of the, that that uh, anti-religious heritage that 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 we were talking about the ability for a secular jew like that to feel at home in a synagogue is is an amazing feat i think that's what people when people come into a place like this and say, I didn't feel judged and I didn't feel misplaced and I didn't feel disenfranchised. I felt at home. That's when they'll be willing to answer your question mm. as, yes, I identify as a conservative or as a reformer. Right. Even if they're not members of a community. Right. right. And, um, and that's an amazing thing, not only for the numbers and not only for the pol- political um, support and so on. That's an amazing thing for, for Judaism. I mean, Look at 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 these at the majority of Israel, who is um, who identify themselves as, as secular as secular. Um, if if identifying yourself as secular means I have no Jewish identity, that's a tragedy for the Jewish people. I agree. And and if we can create a situation where people say I'm a secular Jew, but I feel at home with Judaism, that's you know, that's that's what we need to do. Yeah, and I think secular, you know. It, doesn't mean you lack a Jewish identity, right? Exactly. You have exactly. to have a, but I think everyone, I think all of us, and that's what was lacking in Israel for a long time. And maybe that's the, the beauty, but also the challenge of living in such a homogenous society, of living in that Jewish state you were talking about, Benny, is that, you know, kind of one of the luxuries of living here is we get to be, um, we don't have to think about it, yeah. right? Um, one of my friends uh, calls it being a lazy Jew. You get to be a lazy Jew here. You yeah. can't be a lazy Jew outside of Israel. Yeah, I think that's one of the tragedies of living here. <laughs> but, but it's also nice because, because it, it, you know, if you nice, want to be lazy for a year, you're yeah, not going anywhere, yeah. right? You're yeah. still Jewish. You're still in the Jewish state. You're still in a Jewish school. You're still speaking yeah. Hebrew. Um, we were talking about political tensions and all that. Maybe let's use that uh, to segue to ancient political tensions. And one of the reasons why we wanted to sit with you uh, now and not, let's say, a month from now or two months from now is because next week, 
uh, we mentioned is Tisha B'Av. So what, first of all, what is Tisha B'Av for those of our listeners who might be less familiar? Tisha B'Av is the day in uh, Jewish tradition where we commemorate the destruction of the first temple and of the second temple. With the destruction of the temple come, of course, came, of course, destruction of Jewish autonomy and, and, um, and the beginning of exiles. In the first temple, it was more clear that the exile bega- began um, with the destruction of the temple. In the Wh- second so temple... Which, which exile was this? Who, who was doing the... The Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile, okay. Yeah, right. Um, from which Jews returned about 70 years later. And how, how far back are we talking about? We're talking about 586 BCE. Okay. So a little, a little before our time. Yeah. Um, Just a little. And then, and then about 70 years later, they began build, rebuild, building the second temple, returning to Israel and building the second temple. The second temple was destroyed in the year 70 of the Common Era. This time by the Romans, right? But this time by the Romans. It's not exactly true that we had full autonomy. I mean, that wasn't exactly the end of the autonomy. We were under Roman rule for the destruction. There was a Jewish king, but appointed by the Romans. Um, And... um, and he might not have even been Jewish, and he and his and his ancestors has been, had been forcibly converted, and yeah. So, um, but and also historians will some historians will argue that the exile didn't exactly start immediately with the destruction and so on. But putting historical facts aside for a uh, second, facts don't matter. Let's talk about <laughs> some alternative exactly, facts. Alternative not letting facts. the facts alternative confuse facts. us. Well, let's put the facts um, aside. Talk about the religious narrative here. The, right? Really, the, yeah. the traditional narrative is that this was the destruction. This was the day of the destruction of Jewish presence in certainly in Jerusalem, in Judea, um, in, in 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 Israel, and certainly the the destruction of of Jewish life um, uh, centered around the temple. And as we know, there was no third temple built since then, and Judaism changed drastically after the destruction of the temple, the second temple. Um, what kind of ways? Well, in recognition that there is no temple, but Jewish ritual became, I'm not sure what the word is in, in English. Go for it in Hebrew. Mevuzal. Uh, dispersed. Dispersed, right. Jewish ritual became dispersed and wasn't focused in one particular place in the world. So rather than having a pulchan, Pulchan is like um, religious worship. Ritual. Right, worship. Ritual. 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 So r- rather than having one center for religious worship uh, and ritual, you can now worship anywhere. And you don't have to have a priest who worships for you. You can worship on your own. And the whole culture of tefillah is created and the culture of synagogues is created. Synagogues right. existed while the temple existed, but... but they, the, the functions may have changed and the focus certainly changed. So people, people at this point were literally sacrificing animals and incense offerings in Jerusalem. Um, right. and, and then they would, there was a switch, kind of a, a gradual change at that time to, to prayer, to maybe even you could say intellectualizing or personalizing the, uh, the experience. Right. And you might hear in my, in, in, in my choices of, uh, of, of where I'm taking your question... <laughs> That I, I actually think that uh, Judaism grew and improved as a result of the destruction of the temple. And that's part of why I feel that Tisha B'Av, for me at least, um, is not about um, the grief over the loss of the temple. If it's a day of grief, it's a day of grief over the loss of Jewish sovereignty, 
and mostly a day of grief over the strife that that brought about the destruction according again according to the, to the Jewish narrative and it's important to say this is the Jewish narrative that was created post uh, temple right in the rabbinic uh, writings which are looking back and reflecting on the destruction of the temple and giving meaning. And when they look which back... Which is how most of these narratives actually come exactly, into play. Exactly, right. We say it, but... Right. right, right. And so when they look back on the destruction and they try to give meaning to this enormous historic event, the meaning that they choose to give is to say this terrible destruction came about because we didn't know how to live together. So traditionally, what would uh, what are Jews going to be doing next week uh, around Israel, around the world on this day? So it's a fast day. Um, it's the only fast day except for Yom Kippur, where you fast from the evening before until the end of the day. Um, and we read Megillat Eicha, the the Book of Lamentations, in a special melody, a special sad melody. We sit traditionally, we sit on the floor or on the ground. Um, so many people use candles and not live, uh, not uh, electric lights, um, to kind of give an atmosphere of darkness and and uh, and sadness. Uh, we sing sad songs. We sing lamentations that which were written throughout history because history then, of course, added on to the Shabbat more um, more days of destruction and, and right. And a lot of stuff befell the Jewish people on this exactly. day. Exactly, just so over happened. time. Right. That, yeah, so it's a day of fasting and mourning, and it's such an important day of fasting and mourning that many uh, traditional Jews mark the three weeks before Tisha B'Av between Yud Zayin B'Tammuz, the seventeenth of Tammuz, which is also a fast day, and Tisha B'Av um, by by not doing certain certain activities, not engaging in in happy activities, uh, wearing new clothes, um, listening to music, and 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 things like that, and. Um, and really marking this period as a as a dark and solemn period in the in the in the calendar. Is it, are you are you here in a Masorti congregation going to be approaching it differently than other kind of congregations around Israel? Is there something that you do, um, whether your specific congregation or or Masorti Judaism, that introduced something new to this uh, day, to this tradition? So in the Masorti movement, there, the, the question arose when, um, uh, the question arose, should we be marking this day in the same way that Jews 400 and 500 and 1,000 years ago have marked it? Or should, we, should there be some difference in the fact that we are Jews living in the time of a state of Israel, in the state of Israel, um, with Jewish autonomy, right. it's, it's funny to mourn the loss of sovereignty when exactly. you're in a sovereign Jewish right. state. Exactly. We're sovereign. I mean, we can. I don't know if we can see the old city from here, but we're yeah, we're really close Outside, to the old city. Yeah, yeah. Right? Where Jews are praying at the Kotel again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what does this mean today, or what right. should it mean today? Right. So, in the Masoldi movement, there were, there is a halachic approach, which by Rabbi Tuvia Friedman, who who says we should fast only for part of the day, fast from the night before until after. Mincha um, after the afternoon service in the middle of the day to mark the fact that we are carrying with us the mourning and the joy and and pride in a, in a modern Jewish state. One might argue that the modern Jewish state, given all that we've discussed before, um, still needs a lot of work in everything in all of those aspects that brought about the destruction, according to the traditional narrative. The, the infighting, right? Right. 
Um, and I think that Tisha B'Av is a very, very important day of reflection, of introspection um, on, those, on those issues. And I think that it's become somewhat like that in, in, in Israeli, in Israeli, um, in the Israeli public. I think if schools were in session, it would be more that way. Um, but it's, it's very difficult in the summer to create frameworks, educational frameworks that, that, that right. talk about this. In America, I know that the, that the, um, the Jewish uh, camps uh, make a really big deal of Tisha B'Av. But, uh, but I think also in Israel, the, 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 there, there are more and more events for the general public to kind of um, connect in some way to this day and, and, and use the day as the day of reflection on, on so social issues and questions of, uh, of solidarity within society. I think it's really one of those interesting days because, I mean, even among a lot of uh, small-c conservative Orthodox people in Israel, it has that social undertone, right? The story of Kamta and Bar Kamta about, right. you know, it wasn't the Romans, it was us, right? It was our lack of ability to show empathy and to get along and to, to truly love one another. Um, there's a lot that carries, you know, over into today and... Um, on the one hand, you see that a lot of secular Israelis don't connect with this holiday. This is not Yom Kippur. Um, but on the other hand, I think, I think it is spreading in the public consciousness. When I grew up in America, I grew up Reform. Um, and until I started going to Jewish summer camp, I actually didn't even know Tisha B'Av existed. Right? Because and your mom's the rabbi. She, she wasn't then. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know. Sorry, Shosh. <laughs> <laughs> she will be listening. Um, it was one of those things where if you didn't, you know, if you didn't go to, you certainly didn't go to Hebrew school during the, the year. And uh, most Reformed Jews don't go to services regularly. So unless you went to a Jewish summer camp, and I think I was 14 the first time I went, I literally didn't even know it existed. And it's such a central day in, uh, in the Jewish year. Um, is there, I don't know, to put you on the spot, but is there maybe kind of like a, a lesson or kind of like a, a thought, a Torah thought that you want to share with us from, uh, from Tisha B'Av or related to Tisha B'Av? I'll share two thoughts. One is more uh, controversial. We, we like <laughs> controversial. <laughs> it's not my thought. I, credit goes to my Safta. My Safta is a very, very wise woman. She's the matriarch of a big family and everyone goes to her for advice and for, for interesting thoughts. And when I was traveling in South America, she wrote, wrote me an email. I was there for Tisha B'Av, and she wrote me an email saying to me, Chaya, you know what this day is about? I'm going to tell you a story. And then she, quite, she quotes a, a Talmudic story about, a very well-known story about um, uh, a man and his wife and the, the man's uh, helper, the man's shulia, um, his um, apprentice, uh, wants, wants the man's wife. And um, and a whole terrible story begins with how the apprentice makes the man broke. He lends him money, he makes it broke. He breaks up the marriage. He takes the wife. He makes his um, his lord broke. And the story ends by the man serving the apprentice and his new wife um, and crying into their drinks. It's an awful story. It's an awful story. And my Safta says to me, and this is one of the stories that the Talmud tells as one of the reasons for the destruction of the temple. So my Safta says to me, and you know why the temple was destroyed? Because of this story? How, how this story demonstrates why the temple should have been destroyed? Everyone thinks that it's because of how 
awfully people treated one another, one another. But I'll tell you the real reason. The real reason is because the next day, this awful man can go to the temple, bring a lamb with him, kill the lamb, and all is forgiven. And the temple had to be destroyed because Judaism can't be that kind of religion where people don't take responsibility for their actions and there's no room for self-repent. Uh, wow. So that's one thought that I always carry with me on Tisha B'Av. My Safta, she has a picnic on Tisha B'Av. Not this year because she's not leaving the house. But uh, she has a picnic. She says this should be a happy day. We have a country. We don't need a temple. And that's one thought that I carry with me. Every Tisha B'Av, I say, I'm so glad that we don't have a temple, that Judaism has evolved and has become a religion where everyone can own their ritual, their connection, and their religious experience, and the responsibility for their actions. The other thought I carry with me on Tisha B'Av is something that I said at the president's residence um, five years ago when I was invited to speak there on a panel of Orthodox rabbi, conservative rabbi, reform rabbi, like a joke, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Everyone walks into the president's right? house, right? Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and a, and a secular, secular intellectual, four, four speakers were invited. So I was the, the conservative rabbi, and I said that um, uh, our, our sources teach that uh, the, the, the temple was destroyed because of Sinat Chinam. And a baseless hatred. Right, right so most... most most of my life, I understood that as meaning chinam is like for free, right? Right. For, right. No, for no reason. I, we hate people for no reason. And that's how I was taught to understand this, this expression. We hated people for no reason, and that's, why, and that's why we fought, and that's why the temple was destroyed. And for, for several, for a couple of decades now, I've been feeling that that's a weird way to interpret life, because... We never hate someone for no reason. We always have a very good reason to hate <laughs> someone, right? There's no person I hate without a good reason. <laughs> and um, so what is chsinat chinam? What is this thing, hating people for no reason? No one goes around just hating people. Um, and, and it occurred to me that the word chinam could also mean hach in Hebrew. This is a Hebrew, only a Hebrew drash. Uh, it could mean hachen shelahim, their grace. That's also how you say the word hachen shelahem, chinam, right? And when you walk around in the world hating their grace, hating everyone else's grace, or, or not being able to find grace in other people, not being able to say, you know what? My reform wife, she has it all wrong about Judaism, but she's such a wonderful woman, and she's such a wonderful mother to my children, and I want to build a family with her. Not being able to say that means that we can't really live together. If we can't see, find grace in other people, even if we disagree with whatever fundamental values that they, that they own, then we can't live together. If we can find grace, that's when we can build a life together. We can build a country together. We can build a people together. Um, and ever since I realized this play on words with the word chinam, that's the other thought I carry with me on Tisha B'Av, is this is a day to remind us to try, even though it's really hard sometimes when we really fundamentally disagree with someone, try to find the grace in their culture, in what they do, in the way they carry themselves in the world. 
so that we can learn to appreciate each other and, and build a life together. That was the, uh, that was, my, the, I don't know about you, that was definitely my like aha moment of this entire time. That's no, wonderful. I, I never thought of it that way, but it's true. Chinam, it's uh, the plan words really does work and it resonates. And I'll feel okay if I hate someone because there's a reason. <laughs> <laughs> so after Tisha B'Av, uh, the next thing that's coming up is the uh, Yamim Noreim, the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, kind of the, um, the highlight of the Jewish year. And you know, normally that's, I, I know, again, my mother is a rabbi and, and I'm a volunteer gabbai at my synagogue. Um, that's the busiest time of the year. And we have a new challenge this year, and that's with the coronavirus. Um, and I know rabbis, I'm, I'm writing about this, I'm researching this, but, uh, um, you know, I'd be really curious to hear how the coronavirus, how all the social distancing uh, the quarantine period that we had to stay at home and may or may not come back, um, how that's affected your communal life and your job as a communal rabbi, um, how that's affecting religious life. And, and maybe uh, I know the conservative movement has taken um, unique approaches to this, being on the one hand uh, bound to Jewish law, but also much more in tune with modernity and with what's happening in the world. And then how are you getting ready for the high holidays with all of this uncertainty floating around. Dun, yeah. dun, dun. It's very challenging. Um, so, first of all, I think that one of the most difficult things about this period is the, the uncertainty and the inability to make any plans, which, which puts us in a constant state of uh, anxiety. And um, for myself, for my own well-being, and also for my community well-being, I feel like it's my uh, job to say, we will find solutions, but we're not going to spend the next two months making a plan and changing it every week, because it's, it's going to drive us all crazy. So what I've learned over these past few months is that um, given what you what you said? Given given the fact that we are bound by Jewish law, and also more than Jewish law, I think um, it's not only the question of of halacha, but it's also a question of how do we preserve community now and for the future after, hopefully after we're we're done with all of this craziness. And I don't really want to just go to Zoom for all of, our, all of our issues, for all of our services and so on. And we haven't so, so far. We've because of communal reasons or because of the halachic limitations? Both, both. I find halachic limitations in Zooming on Shabbat and in live streaming and so on. I know a lot of communities do it, and I know, I know there are rabbis who permit it, and that's completely legitimate in, um, as far as I'm concerned. Um, from, my own, from my own perspective, I, I, I prefer not to do that. On Pesach, I wrote something to my community saying, and, and also my own family. Uh, we did Zoom with my mother-in-law who was alone and my, my husband's aunt who was alone and, um, and our family overseas uh, sure. joined in. But, but that was, that was a, and I said that was a one-time thing in very specific circumstances. I don't want that to become the, the, the routine because I see how our morning minion moved into, into Zoom and uh, people don't want to come back to the show. Sure, we can. I know traditionally, um, and the conservative movement 
also held by this, you cannot form a minyan, a, a, a group of 10 people to say certain prayers. You cannot form a minyan unless you're all in the same room. Right. So uh, was there a decision or was there kind of a, um, a legal decision in the conservative movement, in the Masorti movement, that in these special circumstances you could? Right. So, of course, as with everything, there were people who said yes and people who said no. Rabbis who said yes and rabbis who said no. Um, and, uh, and some communities count a minyan on Zoom and some communities don't. We, we count um, 10 people for saying Kaddish but not for saying the other parts of the service which require a minion. And that was because uh, we wanted to create a differentiation between being on Zoom and being live. We didn't want to say it's the same thing. It's not the same thing. It's not the same experience. And it's not the same communal um, experience. It's not the same davening exper- personal experience. And we want to make sure that there's still, still differentiation. And people are, not, are, are still preferring that to actually making the effort of getting out of the house, not, not just the effort, also taking the risk, of course, of getting out of the house and coming to synagogue every morning. Um, and we're still on Zoom in the mornings, but, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm extra glad now that we made that decision then because even if we stay on Zoom, I want it to be apparent that it's different. And, and on Shabbat, we, we, we would Zoom Kabbalah Shabbat, and Shabbat morning we didn't have services when we couldn't leave the house. Now we have services in small groups, in the synagogue, outside of the synagogue, whatever the government decides that week is what we do. It's changing <laughs> from week to week. Yes. Right? But what I've learned is that you, you have to try to create... I've learned two things. I've learned that you can't give up. You shouldn't just say, let's just not do it. There's always a way to do it. And sometimes the, way to, the new way to do it is more special and more meaningful. We did two really, really special events recently instead of two special Shabbatot we were supposed to have. We were supposed to have a Shabbat marking the end of the school year where we honor all the kids and the families and give them presents and brachot, um, blessings under the talit. And we were supposed to have a weekend where we did the same for the, um, for the, for the seniors who are going into the army and into uh, serv- uh, other forms of service. And um, in both cases... Uh, in the first case, we went to the um, my, my my rabbinic uh, partner, uh, rabbinical student Adam Berman, and I went to every house of of the kids of the community and brought them the presents and brought a talit and gave them a blessing under the talit, um, and we filmed it and we created a, a a film to share with the community and it's That's so awesome. it was so special with each and every family individually, and with the uh, with the with the seniors, we um, we formed we did a drive-by, uh, <laughs> a drive-by Shabbat mitgaisim. Uh, they formed a, a caravan with their cars. We we direct, um, decorated with balloons, and then we drove through the neighborhood. And congregants waited for us in in different spots in the neighborhood in groups of twenty, and they made cookies for them and presents nice. and signs and balloons. And it was so so sweet and special. And so. Um, you can't give up and you have to find other solutions and the solutions aren't necessarily Zoom. Uh, they, could, yeah. they, they should be getting together, being with people, even if it's in very, very small scales and finding ways to, to connect and to keep the community together. It's very difficult because people are retreating into their shells. Yeah, right. I think it's not right. just... It's not just synagogue life, it's, it's everything. I see people just retreating and just kind of 
shutting down and it's very 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 sad that's that's actually one of the reasons that i personally and we, we, we say we don't have an agenda or no talking points and we don't but I'll, I'll say this i don't like the the use of the phrase the new normal mm. because i think when you say that you're in a way normatizing what's going on for the long run so if we say we're going to now do work from home and that's the new the new normal, it's like okay, so so we should just accept that forever and ever and ever, and then yes, at what point I'm do okay you, with that? Yeah, okay, work from work from home might be okay for for you and me, but you know, not Zoom congregation, you know, Zoom synagogue. No, we, we're we're social so animals. We need we need that, that human interaction, right? If yeah. the new normal for humanity is that we don't come in contact with other human Terrible. beings, I don't want to be a part of humanity. That, that to me seems it's awful. Um, well, I, I got to tell you, you we know, shouldn't uh, all be shut-ins. I'm, I'm I'm trying to write a series of articles now as part of a book I'm trying to publish on how Judaism is being innovative, and and the Corona time. I'm an optimist, you know. I'm I'm just always gonna, okay, you know, we have a challenge. It is what it is. Now let's figure out the best thing we can do now, and um, I love talking to rabbis and reading about what congregations are doing. Um, and I think it's great, you know, that, that, that seems to be your approach. You know, you said, okay, it is what it is and we're going to find the best thing that we can do. And, uh, it's not the new normal, but, but it's the best that you can do at this time. And we have this global challenge that we're all dealing with. Um, and it's thrown everyone and everything we know to loof. And I think there's, there's also, you know, silver lining in the cloud here. It's forcing you to stop you know, and we're all so busy, and I, I know what the life of a communal rabbi is. You're you're so busy all the time with how things were that it's almost I don't know. Maybe correct me if if I'm seeing this uh, in inaccurately. Stop and and reexamine what your job is and what your role is and what your mission is, and figure out a better way to do it. And okay, so we're not going to be doing you know drive by ceremonies in a year from now, hopefully. But maybe ceremonies that you were doing in the congregation that were kind of, eh, you know, this is this is that opportunity to cut them off and come up with something new. Um, I read about a, a reform community in the states that that is is going to be on Yom Kippur doing Carney Dre, <laughs> where everyone's going to be in their parking lot in the cars with the windows down and you know, okay, drive in right, I could drive in. I, I, um, you know, the, I think that's the beauty of Jewish life. Yeah. That's the beauty of post temple Jewish life that you were talking about, Rabbi, is that we have to be innovative. And, and that's how we've survived and continue to grow for 2,000 years and hopefully another 2,000 years. It's definitely definitely an innovative uh, period. It's, it's, the, it's the time for procrastinators and for, and for creative thinking. <laughs> and, um, but, no, no, but I also think I also, there's also one more point which I think is very important that we take with us during this time and probably also after. And I want to give credit here for to um, Rabbi Avi Novus Deutsch, who's the dean of the rabbinical seminary yeah, I love Avi. <laughs> um, of the Schechter Rabbinical Seminary, because he he really for me he really put this on the table and he 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 talks about this all the time and I and and, and I I've joined him in 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 kind of using this as a mantra that this is also a time that we really need to we rabbis really need to help our communities and ourselves find ways to own personal Jewish experience um, because for many, many respects, we, we rely on the community to provide us the Jewish experience, rely on the rabbi to provide the Jewish experience and now that those things are not accessible is really the time to realize that that maybe wasn't the best model before either and that and that it's, it's a, a person needs to 
get personally engaged. And it kind of echoes the, the laziness that you were talking about yeah. before. It's easier to not get personally engaged. But that's what creates a rich spiritual life is if you do the work and you put yourself right. out there and you ask yourself, yourself questions and you study and you say, I can study by myself on, on Lel Shavuot, right, on Shavuot evening. I don't need a, a lecturer on, on um, I don't need a podcast. <laughs> or, Everyone, or, needs a podcast. <laughs> Everyone needs <laughs> podcasts. Everyone needs podcasts. I can, I, can I can open a book and, and study yeah. and read. And there's so many online tools now um, yeah. for, for, I mean... So many online tools, Sfaria. Yeah. I, got, I, show, I showed, I showed Maya and my wife Sfaria, and she like blew her mind. It's yeah. unbelievable. It's amazing. How was this? And it's not new. This isn't like a Corona thing. It's yeah. been there. no, no, but it's it's really gaining ground, mm-hmm. and, and all of these kind of online platforms that some of them are, um, you know, you you log in when you want to, and yeah. others are um, set times. Um, I know Hadar is doing a, a project Zug where you learn in a Chivruta. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That also you know, wasn't it was before it Corona, was before and, but Corona. now it's absolutely, right. it's more absolutely. So all of these things are yeah. catching on. Yeah. Um, this is a wonderful time, and I think and, and I for th- and for high holidays, I think yeah. that's also going to be one of the tools that we're going to have to use with our congregants, especially the three day a year Jews. Right, uh, three day yes yeah. a year Jews. Yeah, I mean that's an amazing message to to, to say. Sit at home. And do the work at home, and and and, and, and have and here's, and here's, here's a guide, tools, right? Absolutely, right. here's a guide, and here's some tools. And he, tomorrow, I'm going to be meeting Tommy Gottlieb, who's in charge of um, of um, of new media in the Masulti movement. We're going to make a film um, uh, teaching people how to blow shofar for themselves. Yeah. So amazing. yeah, I mean that's that. This is what we need to do now. This is, I think, you know, um, something. Certainly in America, and, and to a lesser extent, but still some here in Israel, one of the things that has happened in modernity is that only the, to a large extent, only the Orthodox have that toolkit to know how to pick up a Jewish book, to know how to study, to have that mindset to say, I'm going to be Jewish with me and my family. I don't need a synagogue to be Jewish, at least in the short term. And I think that's one of, you know, I think you hit it right on the, right on the head. This is one of the opportunities um, that the larger Jewish community has now, and I think not a profession to be Jewish. Right, right. We should all be, uh, whether we're religious or not, Orthodox or conservative or reform or secular. Um, this is a chance to gain a better hold of our own personal Jewish lives. And I think, yeah, I think you're saying it perfectly. It's the job of rabbis and educators to build that toolbox and, and figure out how to reach people so that they can enrich their own Jewish lives, whatever that may mean for people during during this time. And maybe we'll uh, come out stronger for it. Yeah. Hopefully so. Hopefully. So uh, this is usually the time that we say uh, to our guests, share with us what you've got going on and how people can get get in touch or find your congregation in your case. Yeah, if people are in Jerusalem and they're looking for a warm uh, and inviting congregation. Wow. So I would invite you to our um, Echa reading next week on Tisha B'Av. We're going to be meeting on Mount Scopus overlooking the old city. And reading Megillat Echa there in so the yeah, beautiful outdoors. Yeah, it's outdoors and it's beautiful. So yeah. It's on, uh, yeah, but uh, right now we're not allowed to have more than 20 people. So don't come, please. <laughs> um, but, but do find us on uh, either on Facebook, Kehilat Ramot Zion, or Congregation Ramot Zion. Or, um, or if you Google Congregation Ramot Zion, you'll find our website. That's R-A-M-O-T-Z-I-O-N. Yes. So you can find us on Google, find us on Facebook, and um, and join us for 
online activities for now and uh, sign up for activities next year because we'll be back. So yep. we wish you luck in this uh, time, you and all the congregational rabbis out there. Um, and uh, Rabbi Chaya Rowan Baker, thank you so much for being with us and hosting us in your, in your beautiful congregation thank here. Thank you for coming. Thank you. And join us next time on Juanced. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.